asking the question, how can we deliver an online curriculum, right, either for learners to access individually or in places, right, where they can get connected? And then how can we employ community members to deliver that technical training piece? And that technical training piece is a little trickier. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Rural Matters. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman. You know, as always, I thank you for carving out time in your schedule to listen to another conversation about the issues that help, we hope, increase awareness, inform discussion, and promote intelligent dialogue about all the things facing rural stakeholders today. Uh, as always, you know, it is because of you that we are now on our way to reaching 35,000 downloads, which just blows me away. Uh, and we'll think we'll get there by the end of this year, especially with this great four-part series that we're in the middle of. So I do want to compel you to come back for more of these insightful conversations. If you wouldn't mind, just subscribe because you can get these episodes for free in your feed. A quick reminder, you can listen to Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, and also, if you have got ideas or questions about the show that we're doing today, if you're interested uh, to learn more about how to expand your rural reach, please do reach out to us via email. And you can do that at podcasts today. That's the number two day at gmail.com podcast today at gmail.com. Or you can send us a direct message on Twitter. We do our best to get back to you right away. And you can find us there at rural matters pod. And always you can reach out to me at MRB impact on Twitter. Now, as I said, we're really excited to continue with this uh, part four of the final installment of our latest four-part series, Rural Higher Education, Challenges and Opportunities, which is underwritten and sponsored by Ascendium Education Group in collaboration with MDRC. Now, in the first part of the series, we had a really informative discussion on the evolving nature of rural higher education, what's happening now during this pandemic and what to expect moving forward. We heard some really captivating stories and I, I went back and listened to it myself again because there were some things I thought, did I really hear that? And and I really compel you to go back and listen to that series because we talked about some really interesting programs in Alabama and coming out of Montana as well. Um, and we also learned about the really enlightening research being done by Alyssa Ratledge and her colleagues at MDRC. Now, in part two of the series, we heard firsthand from educators in West Virginia how they are transforming the education landscape in that state, also really fascinating. In part three, which we just wrapped up, we discussed rural diversity, both perceptions and reality, which is really important to do this reality check, and rural higher education space. And we also talked about the innovative initiatives colleges and rural communities are developing to meet these challenges and build on the opportunities. So um, now today we're going to turn to, you're going to turn the corner once more. And in this fourth and last installment, um, we really want you to listen carefully because you're going to hear some things that we're sure you'll be able to quickly implement to overcome the challenges to the rural matters that you are faced with today that's occupying your mind. And so with that, um, I just want to introduce our guests and I'm excited to welcome back to the program, Matt Dunn. Matt is the founder and executive director of the Center on Rural Innovation, a national nonprofit action tank committed to creating economic opportunities in rural America through the development of inclusive digital economy ecosystems that support entrepreneurship and job creation. So, Matt, uh, welcome back to Rural Matters. Great to be with you. 
Thank you. So I'm also, I, I mean, I, when I read uh, our next guest bio, I thought, what a cool job she has. So it's Leslie Darty. And Leslie is an education designer with Education Design Lab. She began her higher education career over 17 years ago as an admission counselor and quickly saw an immediate need to build better pathways for transfer students transitioning from the two-year to the four-year institution. Leslie is currently leading the lab's Bridges Design Challenge, and throughout this multi-year initiative, the lab will lead a cohort of rural community colleges in designing, testing, and scaling post-secondary approaches that support the economic agility of rural learners and the capacity of rural community colleges to be the driver of economic growth in their communities. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Rural Matters. Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be here. Thank you. And uh, finally, I would like to introduce Dr. David Tamberg. And David, is uh, he joined the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association in July of 2016. Um, I just learned that he lives in Colorado, uh, where my son and his wife live. That was a nice little chat. And he serves as a Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Strategic Initiatives. Previously, David served as an associate professor of higher education and an associate director of the Center for Post-Secondary Success at Florida State University. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, thank you. My goodness, we have so much to dive in today. But um, first question I'm going to ask uh, each of you, uh, and I'll start with you, Leslie. And that is, you know, because honestly, I have to say, I had never heard of your organization and taking a, a, a nice drive around your website. I was just really excited to learn about you. So if you could give us a quick snapshot of your organization and help our listeners get to understand uh, and get to know you a little bit more. Sure. Uh, and again, thanks for having me and the lab here today. So the Education Design Lab is a nonprofit. We were founded seven years ago by our president, Kathleen Delasky. And at the lab, we work with a variety of partners to ask the question, how might we co-create or co-design approaches that put learners at the center? Um, in the past seven years, we've worked with so many different types of learners, um, transfer students, single moms, work workers looking to upskill, students at HBCUs, just a really broad group of learners. And essentially, the core of our work is ensuring that the learners' needs and goals are front and center when it comes to creating policies and procedures that directly impact their access to and success with education and training that ultimately lead to employment and family-sustaining jobs and careers. At the lab, we use a human-centered design approach, follows a four-phase structure to identify and address what I like to call opportunity spaces for our learners. All of our design projects then begin with an in-depth understand phase, focused again on the needs, the wants, and the behaviors of learners and end with institutions or teams implementing pilots that they have co-created and tested with those learners. So our newest project at the lab, which you talked about, um, and we're partnering with Ascendium Education Group on this, and we're so thankful to them, is called Bridges, or uh, Building Rural Innovation and Designing Education Strategies. So throughout 2021, we'll be co-designing approaches with five rural community colleges to cre create the pilots that are really focused on increasing their capacity to serve as the critical hubs of growth for their learners and their communities. 
Yeah, thanks. Because I I want I read more about that. So we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. Thanks for for bringing that up. Now, David. Um, again, you know this is you know the work that you do uh, with the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Tell us about more about that organization, and then a little bit more about your role there. Yeah, happy to. So um, as you said, we're the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. We're most commonly known by our acronym uh, SHEO. And we serve the chief executives of statewide governing policy and coordinating boards of post-secondary education in the states. And so these are the, the state level leaders of higher education in all 50 states, the territories and uh, DC. And our, our mission is the same as our members' missions, which is to advance the public good through higher education. And we do that through research, advocacy, technical assistance, and professional development for our members. And we aim to um, advance the value of higher education by promoting policies and practices that would enable all Americans to achieve success in higher education. Um, and, you know, we, we have um, many projects that we undertake. Um, we're known for our annual state policy conference uh, on higher education, where we gather over 500 folks to um, consider policies and actions that can uh, advance higher education and, and share research and, and other such things. And so my role within SHEO is I'm kind of the chief research officer. Mm -hmm. And so I try to advance empirical research of the highest quality that is immediately relevant to our members and their policy decisions. Um, I also work to advance our strategic initiatives that can help us and our members achieve their missions. And so it's exciting. We were, we're able to be nimble and creative in our work. Um, and it's particularly cool because we have direct access to these really important state policymakers in, in, in all the states. And so um, I really enjoy my job. Um, we're able to do a lot of really important and cool things. So um happy to share some of those. Yeah, today. thanks for that. And I would imagine that, um, you know, the, the support network that you provide, especially now, I, that's something I've really been seeing across all industry where rural is concerned is that now more than ever, it's just really understanding the need for um, thought partners. And that sounds a lot like, you know, what that your organization is about. Now, Matt, I'm going to bring you in because, as I said, you've been on the podcast before, but I would really like for you to just kind of give a snapshot of what the Center on Rural Innovation is all about and the work that you all are doing there. Sure. So the uh, focus of the Center on Rural Innovation is on closing the rural opportunity gap. Uh, and this was a gap between urban and rural places uh, that emerged after the 2008 recession, where urban places came roaring back and rural places, not so much. Mm -hmm. And the drivers of that divergence uh, was the automation of traditional rural jobs, uh, globalization, and uh, the decline of entrepreneurship in rural places for the 30 years previous. And automation and globalization created a lot of jobs, and it got rid of a lot of jobs. Unfortunately, uh, it 
created those jobs almost exclusively in urban places, and it got rid of them almost exclusively in rural. And so that even before the pandemic, in January of 2020, uh, uh, not even half of the rural counties in the United States had gotten back to their pre-recession levels. Mm. And if you look at digital economy jobs, which were the were the things that were created out of both automation and globalization. Uh, at, as of January, uh, if, uh, rural America represented 15% of the national workforce, but only had 5% of the digital economy jobs. Yeah, it's so astonishing. Argument- I mean, I'm just going to say that is an astonishing number when you think about it. And I just think it's just not talked about enough. So I, I appreciate you sharing statistics like that because they do matter. Absolutely. And so we've focused our entire effort on building digital economy ecosystems in rural places. Sometimes that's on the pure infrastructure side of making sure that they have world-class broadband. But we've also been working with communities that have solved the broadband problem, usually in a very rural way uh, of using whatever assets they could get a hold of and a community effort to come together and bring fiber to the home Mm -hmm. and then allowing those communities to be able to do the so what of broadband, uh, which is actually creating digital economy jobs, opportunity for remote work, and supporting the development of scalable tech startups, because we all know that the entrepreneurs of today are the employers of tomorrow. All of that with a goal to make sure that we've got geographic equity in the age of automation. Okay. And so you're going to learn, folks, in just a minute, why uh, he's such a, Matt is such an important part of this conversation where when it comes to higher ed. But before we get into that, um, you know, uh, we were talking earlier uh, about, uh, David, we were talking earlier about innovation and what that looks like during this time. And I, and I think, it, as we were saying, it's not about, okay, how do we connect each other through Zoom? So my question for you that I'd like you to start us off with is, can you give us a specific example of where innovation is showing up in your work today that you know, may not have been something that you were looking at last year, but you know, today and moving forward, what does innovation look like in higher education where you're concerned? Yeah, thank you for this question because it's a, I, I love the way that it's phrased because it moves us from the kind of deficit theory perspective on rural communities to one that highlights what's unique about them and the resources they have. I really appreciated something that Matt said where he talked about how um, these rural communities have advanced some of the their their technology work in what he said was a very rural way. And I I like that because um I think what we've seen through what COVID has kind of revealed is the the creativity and the innovation and approaches that some of our rural communities take to challenges that's somewhat distinct from urban and suburban areas um, where they kind of harness their internal creativity to address some pretty big challenges. And in rural higher education, we've seen uh, colleges and universities really become hubs of the rural community's response to COVID and the corresponding economic decline and the like. And so they've been, they've become um, uh, resources for broadband, resources for community organizing, 
Um, they've uh, built or manufactured personal protective equipment and distributed it. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are uh, healthcare acts that the healthcare resources that they have have become um, centers for testing um, and treatment. And all of this existed pre-COVID, uh, but I don't know that it was ever appropriately recognized. And so um, I think rural higher education has oftentimes been a leader in uh, rural communities' response to COVID. And I hope that kind of centering of the college and university and the rural community continues post-COVID because it's something we really need to do. Yeah, thanks for that. I, I heard about one um, a community college in New Mexico that they took their lab and they started uh, producing hand sanitizer, for example. So that's a great example. Now, Leslie, I'm going to turn to you because I read this on your website and I love it. And it says, the lab's superpower is to co-design and build equitable learner-centered approaches with colleges, universities, employers, foundations, and regions. So can you share with us some specific example of where innovation is showing up, and it's probably everywhere, in your very cool work? Yes, that's that's very true. And, you know, it's been really exciting for us uh, is the last few months, we, you know, we've really been trying to surround ourselves with really everything rural, um, rural practitioners, researchers, demographers, learners, employers, right? The list goes on and on. And I do think, you know, what COVID has helped in some way, shape or form is that we're able to connect virtually in ways that we haven't been able to before. I think about even just, you know, the rural assembly, you know, that great event that happened a couple of weeks ago and, you know, moving conferences to webinars and the ability to really connect differently. And so we've really, really found that that has not helped not only our work, but just the general, you know, population learn more about what's happening in these rural spaces. Um, You know, and something, you know, that really comes out in, you know, in all of our work and what, you know, we've learned and we know is that the rural spaces and the people in rural communities are resourceful and resilient, right? That's the number one thing. So we see this in their constant evolution and the ways they are thinking about their land, how they support their fellow community members, some things that David was just talking about. And at the lab, we really see that innovation showing up in our work by how we can organize and bring all of these things together. Again, as we think about the co-creation or the co-designing of approaches, you know, too often, you know, we see that things are happening in a silo, right? Or one really great innovation is taking place in one department or at one community college or at one area of the state, right? But really, we are better when we can learn and work together. And so to answer your other piece of the question, we're already seeing um, some really cool things happening uh, in rural areas. At the lab, we call this, we call these models for inspiration, right? <laughs> when it comes to co-designing our approaches. And so again, you know, there's some really cool examples that I just found in, in our work. You know, there's a group in Amador County, California, that is really helping to connect their community members to training and education opportunities opportunities that are either online um, so they can access them in their home if they have that. But if not, the students can use the center's computers. They can use their access. They can use their supplies. Um, They also bring in local instructors for that more technical learning piece. And so this, what I like to call hybrid plus model, Mm 
It is also something we're seeing in places like Montana and Colorado, where you have large, vast sort of geographic areas that these community colleges are serving. And so asking the question, how can we deliver an online curriculum, right, either for learners to access individually or in places, right, where they can get connected? And then how can we employ their community members to deliver that technical training piece? Um, and the technical training piece is a little tricky trickier and frankly it's just more expensive right mm -hmm. but there are some excellent local foundations working with communities to better understand those needs um, another great example of this is happening on the rural coast uh, of maryland and again i just appreciate my job as i get to sort of virtually visit all of these places um, and so uh, in maryland you know they saw a, a need for drivers and heavy equipment operators uh, the rural Community college had the ability to provide the training, but they didn't have the money for the trucks and the other expensive equipment. And the employers, of course, were using their trucks and equipment day to day. So the community college reached out, worked with a local foundation, um, purchased the equipment for their institution. And now they're not only able to use it for training, but they can share it with the community, right? And so they're giving back to the community. Wow. And so these are some really cool examples. And then also, you know, building again on what David and um, Matt said, right? We know that this pandemic has shifted how we look at work, especially how we look at where we work. Um, I've been a remote worker for three years. So this hasn't been new to me, but a lot of people uh, in my small community have tran transitioned to remote work. And a lot of their employers are unsure if they're going to go back to what, mm -hmm. whatever was that traditional office, right? <laughs> whatever that means. So mm -hmm. we just think that this is a tremendous opportunity for rural learners and their communities. So we've been really working with employers who are making this shift to remote work and helping them focus their recruitment efforts on places throughout the country that before maybe felt inaccessible due to geography. Great, great, great examples. I just, I don't think it, enough people connect the dots that you all are connecting here today. Okay, well, we, we do have to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, Matt, I'm going to turn to you because I really think it's important for folks to understand, you know, it, what your position is with respect to higher education and the, the rural and rural innovation uh, ecosystem. So if you all just sit with us for just a moment, we'll be right back. This episode and the entire Rural Higher Education series of Rural Matters is sponsored by Ascendium Education Group, a nonprofit organization committed to helping learners from low-income backgrounds reach their education and career goals. Ascendium's philanthropy is driven by one essential goal, to help more learners reap the benefits of post-secondary access and increased social mobility. Their grant-making is centered around students from low-income backgrounds who have traditionally had more obstacles on their educational path, including first-generation students, rural community members, veterans, students of color, and incarcerated adults. Ascendium believes that rural America has been overlooked for too long in our nation's efforts to boost post-secondary and workforce training opportunities. That's why their philanthropy supports work that helps build collaboration and partnership to support rural learners from enrollment to workforce entry. Supporting post-secondary education and workforce training is investing in the future of rural communities. For more information, visit ascendiumphilanthropy.org. That's ascendiumphilanthropy.org. 
We'd also like to thank MDRC, another collaborator for this episode and for the entire Rural Higher Education series. MDRC is a nonpartisan, nonprofit research firm committed to finding solutions to some of the most difficult problems facing the nation, from reducing poverty and bolstering economic self-sufficiency to improving public education and college graduation rates. MDRC designs promising new interventions, evaluates existing programs using the highest research standards, and provides technical assistance to build better programs and deliver effective interventions at scale. You can learn more at mdrc.org. That's mdrc.org. Now, let's get back to our discussion. Okay, we are back, and we're having another really great Rural Matters conversation about Rural Higher Education. It's the fourth and last boohoo in this really great series. And I'm so thrilled to be um, joined by Leslie Darty, Dr. David Canberg, and Matt Dunn. And Matt, um, before we took a break, I, I said I, I really want to take a deeper dive into rural higher education because the Center on Rural Innovation released a report titled Higher Ed's Key Role in Rural Innovative Innovation Ecosystems. And what did you learn in that report? I've, I've read the report, but I would like for you to really lay out what you learned and what it is that you think is really important for us to understand about how your research can help rural communities set up, be set up for success where this is concerned. So the, the work that we do is to really identify where digital economy ecosystems can thrive uh, fastest. Because part of the problem is that there are almost no rural places in our country uh, that are actually seeing digital economy jobs and startups flourish. Mm -hmm. And so right out of the gate, we said that our criteria for that first wave had to have a four-year college or university campus. And there were a few reasons for that. We, we believed that there was uh, a need for a talent flow that would come from students and faculty, uh, and perhaps more importantly, uh, faculty spouses. Uh, we actually talk a lot about uh, faculty spouse value uh, in building uh, an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, but we also knew that they were anchor institutions that could serve all of the kinds of roles that David mentioned, which is as a, as a convener, as access to uh, national uh, resources and grants and having the uh, capacity to do applications for funding sources that would just be really hard for a small economic development team in a rural place to be able to do. So we, we looked for those right out of the gate. But we then spent some time digging in deeper into the various ways that rural places have engaged with their institution of higher education to advance things forward. And what we found was a really, really creative set of different kinds of ways that uh, that rural institutions of higher education uh, would engage. Uh, you have uh, places that are doing that and, and, and sometimes doing that for the first time. Uh, so in Waterville, Maine, Colby College has been on the outskirts of the downtown for a long time, really focused on their own student and faculty experience while Waterville was a manufacturing community. And even though they were in the same municipality, they could have been uh, really, really far apart. They could have been in different states. Hmm. But what has happened over the last uh, four or five years is a clear concerted effort from Colby College to invest in the future of Waterville. 
in a way where they're bringing students and faculty and vitality to downtown. And when you hear from the college president there, he feels that's critical to their survival in this dynamic world of change in higher education, because he wants to make sure that they're able to compete for excellent students, excellent faculty, and to be a part of generating new innovations and ideas that he thinks is going to be the most stimulating for participants in his uh, largely undergraduate uh, set of, of classes and courses. Uh, we also see things in, in uh, Marquette, Michigan, uh, that are really exciting and aligning their history of having a military base with the work that's going on at the at the university there uh, to be able to create uh, a program in cybersecurity, which can then be translated over into the nascent uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem that they're building in the community itself. So they're they're using core competencies that were historically there in, in the region with what they can provide from that institution of higher education, meeting their mission of creating uh, programs and classes that can deliver real value, and then taking it all the way to being a part of growing an economic base in that immediate future. So we just see example after example like that sometimes takes some you know mental... Uh, shifts to realize that there is room in these rural places for innovation to take place and that a, you know, a, a school or a program doesn't have to simply say to their undergraduates who are taking computer science, oh, you've got to move to Chicago or Des Moines or uh, Portland in order to realize your dreams, that you can actually do it right here. Uh, but yeah. we've just been inspired by the leadership that institutions of higher education have taken to really do that in a proactive way and provide a, a blueprint uh, for rural America moving forward. Yeah, great point. I mean, how close-minded must we be if we don't think that we can't take what you're talking about and put it anywhere so long as they have the support systems that they need to do that? That's a great point. So, you know, David, as I'm sitting here listening to Matt talk about kind of these, you know, um, particular areas, you know, one one college or one university at a time, I, I wonder what your thoughts are with respect to how states might best work with rural institutions to advance the state's interest in workforce and educational needs? That's a, a really great question. And I, I think there are two things um, that state leaders uh, need to keep in mind and approaches that they might take. First is, um, I feel that it's important for state leaders to broaden their perspective on rural institutions from just seeing them as um, centers for education, um, which is obviously their most important and key role, mm -hmm. but go beyond that to see them as as the uh, association called ASCU calls their members um, stewards of place. Um, and state leaders need to better centralize the rural institution within their entire community development, rural development, economic development, and cultural development efforts and see rural higher ed as a key actor in those efforts. Um, the second thing that I think our members at SHEO, the state higher education leaders, um, need to 
recognize and then act on is that one of the key challenges facing rural institutions is that they're often geographically removed from the centers of political power and economic power uh, within their states, right? That they're not approximate to those geographically. And so state higher education leaders need to be that connection for the rural institutions. Um, And so they need to be advocates for rural institutions. Likewise, they need to be the ones that draw the connections to the other um, agencies and offices operating within the state and work collaboratively with them. So that could be the Office of Community Development, the economic, the state economic development office, the Department of Agriculture, of Workforce, Labor and Industry, the Rural Development Agency. The state higher education executive officer needs to be at those tables and they need to want the state higher education officer there Mm -hmm. because each of those agencies' missions and goals can be advanced through better engaging with higher education and specifically the rural institutions themselves. Higher education works um, in can work in concert with all those. We know that um, increasing the educational attainment rates in rural communities pays uh, loads of dividends. Likewise, these these uh, colleges are the cultural centers for these uh, rural communities. Often, they're often the the economic development center. Um, and likewise, and so the state higher education officer need ought to be working as an advocate for these rural institutions and helping their peers in these other offices and in the legislature and in the governor's uh, office, working to help them understand just how critical these institutions are and how uh, those institutions can help advance their goals. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I feel that state higher education officers ought to be the chief champions of these rural institutions mm-hmm. at the state level. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I'm thinking about, again, the times that we're in, we have so many competing priorities. However, I do see this personally as, you know, aside from my rural health work, I do see this as one of our biggest priorities and one of our most essential opportunities right now. And Leslie, with that, I'm, I'm going to bring you in because in our last episode, we talked about diversity and rural higher education. And we know, um, and if you don't know, you need to know that rural learners experience greater disparities at each stage of the education to workforce pipeline relative to their urban and suburban peers. Um, and so in the intro and what you talked about earlier, you talked about um, the Bridges Design Challenge. And so I would like to hear more about that with the time we have left. If you could just give us a little bit more of a snapshot of what that um, is about and and how does the lab's approach allow for that centering, um, that that centered learning experience, if you will. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, <laughs> At the lab, um, you know, we believe, you know, that there are just some really wonderful things happening um, in all places, um, you know, in higher education. But a lot of times we're creating opportunities for learners Mm -hmm. without really asking learners, right, and having them come into the conversation. Um, Earlier, I talked about our labs, the lab's four phase process, right? And so we start every project with what we call an understand phase. And that's where we are with Bridges right now, right? We're starting by asking um, what we can learn 
from the learners. Um, we do that through both quantitative and qualitative data, um, really to, you know, help us, what we say, you know, um, you know, sort of uncover the why behind some of those quantitative data pieces. You know, often as administrators or researchers, um, we're making assumptions about the why. You know, why are students not enrolling? Why are they leaving higher ed without ever asking the learners themselves? Mm. And so really the lab's human-centered designer, excuse me, human-centered design process helps not only uncover those whys, but then also guides us in creating the approaches, approaches that address the why. Um, but we also recognize that institutions need the buy-in uh, to do this transformational work, not only from their leaders, right? Not only, you know, from the state, but from learners and their communities. And so when we think about co-designing um, for our Bridges project, we're thinking about that entire community. Um, and so it's bringing multiple stakeholders to the table from the very beginning. Uh, one of my favorite activities that we lead in our work at the lab is called the gallery walk. And so in the gallery walk, um, we display that qualitative data so everyone can immerse themselves in the learner's voice um, or as we like to say, take a walk in the learner's shoes. And mm -hmm. so it's really hard not to walk away from that event fired up really to make some changes and to think differently about how you're approaching those changes with, again, thinking about um, that learner voice and keeping it at the center. Um, you know, we've talked about rural institutions and, you know, being how they're stewards and how really they are the community, right? They are the stewards of their community because they are the community. And so, um, you know, on that same note, we have to think really about how these communities are continually evolving and changing with these population shifts. So again, to ensure that all voices are at the table and that we are intentionally inclusive in our education of all those people. You know, so I've got a boy, I could just I have so many other questions for you, but yeah. I'm just curious, you know, stick with us, Leslie. So where where are there opportunities for institutions to continue to develop and grow? And then we're going to close out by just talking about the learners themselves. But where do you see opportunities for institutions today moving forward to, as I said, develop and grow? Is it too much to say everywhere? And anywhere? Ah, no, 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 no. But I think it is, you know, um, you know, it, it's things like this, right? It's listening to podcasts like these. It's listening, um, reading things that are coming out of, you know, with David's work and with Matt's work. And it's just, you know, really um, immersing ourselves um, in that voice and continuing to learn and evolve. Um, there was an article this morning I read and it called for radical collaboration, right? <laughs> and that really stuck me as we think of, stuck with me as we think about how we continue to like proactively seek out partnerships, grow opportunities, right? Expand the understanding of our communities, the learners we are serving now and the learners that we hope to serve. And really, how do we work towards equity in both education and training, right? It's not going to be sort of a one-step process, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have to create a culture that deeply values feedback from our learners, from our workers, from other community members, and proactively bring people to the table or perhaps again at the Zoom call, depending on where we are. Right. For the in those decision making um, times. And I think, you know, a big part of our work is to really ask our learners and our community colleges and, you know, our institutions who isn't at the table. 
right? Who has not stepped up to the table and um, why, right? And mm-hmm. let's invite them to these conversations. Um, so we just have to stay committed, you know, to our work. We stay open to the feedback um, and really never assume that we're done evolving. Um, but really, we have to continue to lead mm-hmm. by ensuring that we are, you know, radically collaborating and that we are bringing all voices to the table, but that we are always centered around that learner voice when it comes to all of our transformational um, things that we're hoping you know, to come out of this work and all of the work that we're all doing in higher ed right now. Well, Leslie, I just, I'm nodding. One of the things that you just said, I, it resonates so much with me. It's not who is at the table, it's who is not at the table. And I think that's such an important point. David, I'm going to la- put the last question to you because um, in, in your experience, I wonder what advice you would give to rural leaders who are partnering with institutions of higher education to further develop their diverse communities? That's a really excellent question and thank you for it. You know, um, one thing that uh, local rural communities and local leaders of of local rural colleges and universities need to continuously attend to is the town and gown relationship. Mm. Um, That relationship is something that needs to be nurtured continuously. It's never solved. It's never made right and then stays right. You have evolutions in leadership, both in the local community and the college, and you have um, events like COVID and other things that can either strengthen or strain that relationship. And it's we really need to uh, attend to carefully because um, there are examples of where um, the 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 college walls itself off from the local community or there are challenges in the in the differences in the between the college culture and the local communities culture Mm -hmm. um and so something that i i i think um the the local community and the college leadership need to do is they need to have regular meetings. They need to talk about the goals of each and what they can do to foster each other's goals and missions and visions. Um, They need to come to a a shared understanding of where the local rural community is headed and how the college can play an important role in advancing that. Um, there's a lot of innovation and creativity within each. Um, there are differences. Um, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, at the local college, the average faculty member has a PhD. In a lot of rural communities, the educational attainment rates are, are far below that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these things have to be uh, addressed with clear eyes and with the assumption of good intent on, on each party's part. And so when it when it comes to things like advancing diversity within the within the the the, the local community, um, I think the data are pretty clear that a lot of our rural communities are becoming more and more diverse. Um, and um, the the colleges often uh, bring in uh, uh, more diverse communities in their students and their faculty and their staff. And so there's a lot of kind of shared learning that can go on between the local community and the college between around what it means uh, to foster equity, mm-hmm. um, to improve and grow diversity in a way that's uh, empathetic and supportive. 
Um, but again, this this has to be part of a continuous effort of fostering that town and gown relationship. If that town and gown relationship is strained, um, concepts and actions around equity and diversity are not likely to be productive mm-hmm. at all. Um, and so that's where I would I would start is that kind of continuous effort on the on on improving the town and gown relationship. That's a, so many excellent points because we can you know look at diversity. Um, you know, both my kids went to college in, in different rural communities and. There's the, kind of these assumptions about, you know, the, it, diversity is not seen as something to embrace that's positive. And I love what you're talking about because, it, listen, at the end of the day, it's not about our own self-interest. It's about mutual self-interest, right? And there's nothing more powerful than collaboration when you come to the table and you say, gosh, I could not have thought of this on my own, but we're working together to do it. And I I can't think of another better time for us to just kind of put all that beside. I, I often say yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. And that's why it's the present. So um, my gosh, I am so appreciative to all of you, to David, Tamberg, Leslie, Darity, Matt, Don. Um, I am also, I just want to say, I'm really appreciative for MDRC and Alyssa Ratledge um, who joined us on a few of the episodes in the series uh, and her colleagues at MDRC, I want you to know that they will be putting together uh, brief summaries of all four episodes, which will include valuable resources you can tap into as accompanying documents to this series. And as soon as it becomes available, Rural Matters Nation, we will let you know how to access that. So I want to thank all of you for joining us today. It's been, for me, just a really enlightening conversation. I'm going to keep watching you in the space that you're in, and I'd love to hear from you again if there's something that you think would be of interest, and I know there will be, to our listeners. Um, at this point, I also want to really acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They we really help promote the work that we're doing here through their networks and channels, and they are the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research and Rural Education, Learning Blade, and TCA, that is the Rural, uh, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, as well as AASA, that's the School Superintendents Association, and the National Rural Assembly, the National Grange, and NOSOR, and that's the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health. As I said earlier, if you'd like more information on the rural issues that we're talking about here, if you have a guest that you'd like to suggest, if you'd like to learn how you can partner with us to expand your rural reach, contact us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. As always, we would appreciate if you would rate this podcast on iTunes. I know you'll say all sorts of good things about it. Thanks for that. So Rural Matters is produced by Michael Levin Epstein. Thank you to him. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Rural Matters.